Hi, this is Will Carter with the CSIS Strategic Technologies Podcast. We're here with uh, Sean O'Keefe, former administrator of NASA, now at the Syracuse Maxwell School, and General Haas Cartwright, who is the former commander of STRATCOM and vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and is now with uh, CSIS in the ISP program. So, guys, you just did a fantastic event uh, for our program uh, talking about the U.S. strategy for space, and uh, we wanted to ask you a couple of follow-up questions from that event. I think one thing that uh, was touched on a little bit indirectly, but I think is a big issue uh, that a lot of people are worried about is the future of budget and funding. Um, so space is an area where you've seen uh, on the NASA side, budgets are pretty flat now, uh, growing just a little bit. And on the military side, you've actually seen some declines in some areas. And while you have the private sector coming in, the question becomes, where's the money going to come from and what is the value proposition going to be that's going to get that funding for new space activities? So I'm curious to get both of your perspectives on this, both from the civil side and the military side. I, I'll jump in there first. Um, you know, to some extent, and, and some people will look at this as a pejorative way of, of saying it, but um, much of the risk of innovation has been outsourced to the commercial sector. Now, innovation at the greenfield level, the early stages and whatnot, still predominantly you'll find inside of NASA and DOD and the intelligence community, but it's very focused in, in certain sectors. Um, the broader risk activities of launch and, and uh, uh, the, particularly the the payloads that surround the Earth, GPS, uh, comms, things like that, television, et cetera. Commercial has really taken those um, and moved the technology very quickly to um, a low-risk activity and an affordable activity. they still got to go through launch. Um, that, that price has stayed pretty constant. But, but what they're doing on orbit and how they're moving their information around and their capabilities around has, has really gotten to be very low risk and a very good proposition for business. Now, when you start to get into traveling to other planets and things like that, I think that's still going to be hard, but their innovation is going to contribute to that. No, I, I fully agree. There, is, there has to be an articulated imperative as to why public resources are required to to venture into the next stage of just about anything. And the establishment of uh, national strategies or, or threat assessments or um, opportunities to exploit new technology developments, those typically are the kinds of catalysts that will motivate a serious consideration of resource requirements beyond simply maintaining status quo or, if anything, maybe even reducing. Uh, so you know, and, until that kind of public debate is energized for the purpose of one of those imperatives, a national strategic objective, a threat assessment, a uh, opportunity to, to exploit a development of a technology or something, those opportunities for innovations, uh, more often than not, will await those public referenda opportunities or uh, circumstances. Instead, what we see is, is so much of uh, 
the developments, I think, that have really sparked significant changes in the course of the past decade plus have largely been risk assumed by entrepreneurs willing to assume that at their own peril. And as a result, that's in large measure what made this country such a remarkable place is <laughs> you have you know, people willing to do that. So expectations that only public referenda will alter those particular positions is really you know, more of a, you know, a, uh, a viewpoint that has a, a set of limitations that will always be restricted by waiting for one of those developments to occur. So you mentioned that there's these entrepreneurs who are uh, fueling a lot of new developments in the space community and that commercial has really taken up a lot of the slack. Um, and I think that one of the interesting developments is you've seen the uh, RFI from NASA about uses of the International Space Station to commercialize low Earth orbit and to develop some new uh, demand to use space. Um, are there any particular applications or, uh, or initiatives that you see generating a lot of that demand and maybe uh, creating a commercial imperative for new space development? Uh, it could. Um, again, the, the International Space Station is a, a very unique, remarkable platform that doesn't require the replication, as we have to here on Earth, of either no gravity or microgravity condition. It's there as an omnipresent condition on the platform that, uh, that orbits 24-7, uh, 365, and uh, is, operates as a laboratory in a microgravity condition. Any number of different experiments dealing with um, uh, physiological, biological, material science kind of applications benefit by that condition. And there are multiple commercial opportunities, pharmaceutical, you know, et cetera, that can be developed that in turn uh, are attractive if the price of admission is set at one that is considered a relatively reasonable risk to assume that commercial enterprise. This has always been a stated ambition of one of the th purposes of what station could do. Uh, but it, it, we're just now beginning to reach the point of uh, price point, if you will, of, of availability of that capability that in turn could make those uh, kind of laboratory exercises uh, in that constant microgravity condition uh, a reliable mechanism to do so. I mean, the the opportunity, and this is not much different than what uh, Sean has just said, the opportunity in the material sciences in things like crystal development, nanotechnologies and growing nanostructures, 3D printing, mm -hmm. um, none of them yet have demonstrated the ability that, gee, I want to build a factory in space to do that, you know, for as much the same reason as it's hard right now, launch costs and recovery costs, et cetera. But you start to get into things that could have the characteristics of rare earth metals, um, technologies like that, technologies for manufacturing space bodies in space, mm -hmm. technologies like that, that then start to find a way around uh, and find a, 
a positive relationship in the cost of the materials, in the cost of getting the materials to the station, and the cost of actually bringing it to market. You know, those, those today don't have the cost break points that you need, but the technologies there seem to suggest that potentially they could at some time in the future. And so if you have something like the space station where you can go do a, a trial run on something, build a nanostructure or something like that, and you find leverage in doing it, and then you say, well, if I could do that, here are the components on a, on a basic communication satellite as an example. Would it be easier just to haul the raw material up and, and operate there? Would it be easier to haul raw material that you could turn into a fuel construct for an energetic to then put on an existing those are the things that are being looked at um, the prices may not have made it yet but there are there are indications that there's probably the opportunity with more technology that that may change mm -hmm. that, that's a that's a perfect material sciences example of how uh, that capability can be exploited if you look through the whole process of one breakthrough example comparable to this on the um, physiological side of it is one of the consequences of being in microgravity condition for extended periods of time, months, is a dramatic degradation in muscle mass and bone mass, calcium uh, depletion that occurs. Um, what NASA has, has worked through along with all the partner states involved in the International Space Station over the last 15 years is an understanding of how to arrest that degradation of muscle mass bone and calcium uh, position uh, to avoid the kind of physiological challenges that typically were encountered on the front end uh, of the space station regular uh, uh, crew rotations uh, back in the early uh, 2000 era, now to today, 15 years later. Uh, seeing how that's been arrested. Now, that's gotten the interest of a lot of pharmaceutical companies and others who've looked at this and said, geez, we're, we're one step away from trying to figure out how you would conquer the challenges of osteoporosis. And if that could become a ubiquitous kind of capability that could be applied in that, uh, to that malady that be, befalls all of us with advancing age, the consequences of that would be historic, to put it mildly, uh, and it's one that they're looking at as a potential. But it is a risk. All right? How do you take that body of knowledge, apply it to something that then has you know, the kind of application to all of the rest of us you know, who are confined here on the planet uh, on a regular basis? That's, that's the constant trade-off in addition to what are the unique process capabilities, as, uh, as General Cartwright just alluded. So you've talked about, you know, more commercial entities getting involved in space, these new activities that may become price competitive uh, in the next few years. And then you've also got a number of people who are taking innovative approaches. So you think of Bigelow Aerospace and their uh, concept of habitable space stations that they could put into orbit. Richard Branson with his uh, space flights. Um, the governance structure for space was really designed largely in the 1960s, and it was designed for a few governments, really, to be acting in. Um, now, you, General Carter, you talked during the event about deconflicting and you know the fact that space is getting crowded. You have many more entities, um, non-government entities, 
and foreign governments that are getting involved in space. How can we take the, uh, the governance model for space to the next level uh, to accommodate all of these new entities and all these new challenges? And how should we think about what rules can be used to govern activity in space with all of these different players? Um, my sense is it will be a um, stair-step approach. Um, almost always is about with policy and, and then eventually moving to law. But um, right now the most um, enabled uh, capability for some ICAO or FAA-like structure exists in the military. Um, I don't expect that it will stay there. I expect the military will keep a capability, but I don't expect the, an international capability to be with the U.S. military. Um, but what you have in the CIC that they have out there, the um, uh, shoot, I can't even remember the acronym out, out at the JSPOC, is, is an international group that are set up to now be exposed to the data and then be able to predict, um, and particularly for their country, to say, okay, here's when the next, they call them conjunctions, the next potential running into of, or you must move out of the way of, or if you're going to launch, here's the windows you can expect to have. Um, and getting that out in a very public way so that it's there. Now it is basically the US and some other countries who have been willing to contribute sensors taking what they know and what they have on orbit and saying, okay, here's everything that we know. And I think it's in the 22,000 area of objects that they're tracking and geo on in. Um, at some point, likely, first step is increase the resolution to something that's good and requires, in, in, in commercial standards, um, okay, I want to expend the absolute minimum amount of fuel to avoid because that translates to life on my satellite being lost. So get enough resolution that you don't move something away a mile when it only needs to be moved a meter um, and, and start to do that. That's happening. That's going on right now. The next step will be, okay, let's really net these sensors together in a coherent way and put them into a common software language, a common database, you know, everybody, the solution to everything is the cloud. Um, but a, a structure that can be accessed by anybody, it doesn't have to go to the Joint Space Operations Center and say, okay, can I have permission to see this information? You basically can get it. They have a, a internet structure, but it's very limited right now. They need to open that up to something that's far more queryable, far more dynamic, um, and move in that direction. And then, likely, you'll want to move it into some construct that has at least regime level or norm level authority, if not law authority, that it can put it out there. The difficulty here is if he's from one company and I'm from another, I want him to expend his fuel. He wants me to expend my fuel, and so we play chicken to the last minute. We've got to get out of playing chicken as a way of deconflicting and, and start to have enough resolution to say, okay, you move a half meter one way, I'll move a half meter the other, whatever is appropriate for the activity. So I, I think the international body is still a ways off, but uh, the U.S. took leadership in trying to establish a center. Now the U.S. has got to relinquish some of the knowledge it has so that it can actually be useful. Absolutely. I mean, that that's... 
that's exactly the method this is going to take, I think, over time, is the, the broader understanding of what the uh, space conditions are from a weather standpoint as well as a yeah. debris uh, standpoint and making that much more broadly available. And that's exactly as General Cartwright said. This has been coming for, you know, over the past decade is seeing a very dramatic improvement in just the sharing and access of what you know. But remember, I mean, when you look at the, 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 the challenge of what we're dealing with in terms of volume of people out there participating or governments, you know, seeking access or whatever, this is right up there with, you know, wagon trains in the West, in the Wild West, okay? I mean, it, it, it's, it's a one-shot thing. It's not a proliferation. It is a very limited vo voyage uh, or, or opportunity that's being pursued because it's still a largely uncharted terrain in terms of its you know, commercial accessibility and, and means to use. So uh, this is not a Herculean task required to, to, to regulate the traffic, if you will. Uh, it's something where just broader situation awareness is all that's going to be necessary at this early stage. But we, you know, you like to hope that over time we're going to need to have a much more rigid enforcement because it is that much more accessible because there is some value to be had by it. Uh, and that's a determination that, uh, you know, each of these risk takers are going to be taking in turn to determine whether or not that really is true. So as the U.S. is moving towards uh, more leveraging the private sector uh, to develop capabilities and to get things into space, uh, does that imperil in any way our leadership in space, or how do we think about, uh, as a government, playing a role in leading in space, making sure that we still have a voice with countries like China and India that are developing new capabilities all of the time, and what is the U.S.'s approach, you know, what is the vision of the U.S. government's role in space that can carry us forward? I, I mean, I, this, this one really, I think, is a consistent concern of exactly how far do you uh, need to go uh, in anticipating commercial developments. My bias is that um, the government's role in development of technology and capability and in innovation change should be and largely is restricted to the front end of that challenge of really being the leadership of those opportunities. And then once repeated on a regular basis, that becomes a far more useful exercise or endeavor to turn over to entrepreneurs, commercial advocates, whatever, who can replicate the, the frequency of the same development. So the opportunity to launch and go somewhere with cargo, turn around, bring back something else, whatever. That's a repetitious event. That's not something that generally um, is necessary for the government to engage. And that's basically what's, what's been the mission objective of NASA all along. The military side of this is, is markedly different. There are requirements in which you have to have, uh, I think, access and assured capabilities in areas in the event that for whatever reason, every other alternative is denied. And that's got to be balanced relative to this otherwise 
really useful paradigm of saying that the government ought to be out of the business of producing things that in turn somebody else could be producing and making or servicing or whatever else uh, as an ongoing concern to the benefit of a broader audience than simply the government itself. Um, that's, you know, again, this is where these two, you know, imperatives, I think, have to, to be reconciled with regularity, and by and large, they are. So at the point in which we begin to see uh, cases where access to space is much more reliably repeated on a fundamental, basic, simple level, that's where we've done it. And that's where we're starting to see the emergence of uh, commercial space capabilities is repetition of the same functions that we've already conquered years ago in, in, a, in accomplishing that task. That said, I think we're on a, on a, on a wave right now where we may be um, experiencing where entrepreneurs are ready to take the risk on the development side of this to find new opportunities that have yet to be fully explored uh, as a public entity uh, function. And that's, uh, that's exciting. That's an interesting time. We haven't reached that yet, but it appears to be potentially right on the horizon. Great. So my last question, I know you guys uh, have a lot to do today, but if you were to pick one technology each that you think is, you know, that's not fully developed yet, that's emerging, uh, that is most exciting in the area of exploration and civil space activity and in the area of military space activities, what one new technology would you point to that really is exciting and could change the way that we think about those uh, areas? You know, I think there is a lot of them out there. And the reusable um, constructs that people are starting to get to, if they could if they could materialize and actually generate resource. I mean, there's a lot of things you can do reusable that make it more expensive, not less. Um, but reusable, modular, adaptable buses, structures, launch vehicles, things like that, all are within our reach and all likely will become, will come at the imperative of cost, you know, management. So those things are there. Um, the idea now to start to, this is kind of where I would go, the idea to start to introduce logic um, into the systems of on-orbit assets such that they communicate with each other, create awareness with each other, um, can be tasked as a group to accomplish a function, um, holds a lot of promise. Um, right now we're being very manual, okay, you're a satellite, I look around you, I project and I, I just look at the whole world as if it's rotating around you, I want to put you over a certain piece of earth or when it passes over, etc. If you could do that as an architecture, as, an, you know, as a group of entities sharing a responsibility for that function, you probably could do it for a lot lower price with a lot more efficiency than we're doing it today. And so that holds that idea of starting to think about this like the military is doing with their um, third offset strategy of starting to think about groups of entities creating function amongst themselves and managing amongst themselves. That's very exciting and watching that start to come. And I think the other one that I would point to, I'm going to give you two, um, is time. Um, uh, moving to the next generation of time will have significant implications for space-based assets 
and space-based tra transition, you know, like GPS down to the Earth. So today you can think in terms of, you know, tens of meters of air being converted in the next generation of time, which has already been invented and the Nobel Prize has already been awarded, um, is talking about from 30-some thousand miles out, I can do it down at the centimeter level. Okay, that, that opens up all sorts of things in agriculture, all sorts of things in self-driving cars, all sorts of things here on Earth that would be huge benefit, um, particularly if it's space-based. Yeah, just to, to that, that was a very uh, articulate and elegant way to, to, to say precisely where I was going to go with this, Gemma, is the, the, the last feature of what he mentioned is, uh, is ascribed to a basic um, school of thought that where we are on the continuum of Moore's Law is we have passed through each of the first half of the exponential, you know, the, uh, exp exponential rate of change, improvements, um, qualitative uh, characteristics built into product and services and new ways to deliver information and everything else. And we're now at that point about the middle, if you believe that, where you'll see it happen at a dizzying pace of change that will be truly stunning. Not that the last 10 years have been kind of chicken feed. It's been absolutely amazing to see where we've been in this past decade of seeing the, the, the pace of technology insertion in a ubiquitous manner. I mean, the ability to access information right now on a real-time basis was not something that was available when he or I served as public officials, and that wasn't that long ago. <laughs> but the pace is totally different today in what we're looking at, and it therefore alters the decision loop, the process, all that. So I'm at a point to one technology that will have its greatest application in space exploration is one that, that uh, General Cartwright mentioned a little bit earlier as one example, is we can develop the capacity for 3D printing in, a, in an in-space condition that conquers a gigantic proportion of the cost uh, and, and time and you know, weight and energy and everything else that it takes to get to that point by launching here off this rock. <laughs> As a result, if you can achieve that on a regular basis and a larger scale, that suddenly opens up a exploration opportunity for all manner of technology advance that would be just dizzying because the opportunity to, to, to build something in space that incorporates all the technology advances that we enjoy right here on Earth without having to get it there with all the challenges that it takes to accomplish that task is a major, major breakthrough. And it's one that I think could be one of those fulcrum points uh, where you, or pivot points where you see a dramatic shift from that point forward. Great. Thank you both so much for joining us. This was uh, Sean O'Keefe and General James Cartwright uh, with the CSIS Strategic Technologies Podcast. Thank you all for listening.